0: and remain standing for its reading. Our sermon text this morning is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can follow along on the screens behind me. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth and its power. And I pray that your spirit would use it now as we take a few moments to exalt in it. I pray that you would uh, open our hearts to receive this word. And as we learned last week, may we not only be hearers, but may we be doers of your word we can only do that by the power of your grace so I pray now that you would speak to us that we would hear your voice that we would respond with obedience we pray that you would comfort us if that's what we need we pray that you would convict us if that's what we need we pray that you would change us not for our sake but for yours in our midst and in the city for the sake of the gospel in Jesus name we pray amen you can be seated If you're just joining us, whether you've been out of town or if this is your first time here, we are currently in um, a sermon series through the book of James. We're going to be walking through it verse by verse. That's our typical practice here at Trace Crossing. And uh, we're going to be in James for the rest of the summer. So all the way to the end of the summer, we'll be in the book of James. And uh, again, James is one of those books that's really practical. A lot of people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament for good reason. It is very memorable. James uses a lot of illustrations Um, But it's also very challenging because what James is primarily concerned with throughout his book is that our faith is not something that remains in our minds, but it's something that extends through our heart and out to our hands and how we actually live out our faith. That's what James' primary concern is. And like I said, last week, we encountered verses 19 through 27 of chapter 1 where James calls us to have a faith that obeys the word, that we don't just hear the word, that we do the word. And this week in chapter 2, James' primary concern is partiality, verse 1, you see that word partiality, which uh, literally means to make a judgment based on appearance. It, it literally means that you're judging someone by the appearance of their face. So two words we're going to repeat a lot this morning. James's primary concern, favoritism on one hand discrimination on the other, favoritism and discrimination, which in and of themselves, they are nothing more than judgments and treatment of people based on outward appearance alone. So specifically for James's context, he has in view this social disparity that existed between the rich and the poor of his day. Most Christians in the early church were poor, an overwhelming amount I mean, even when you look at Scripture, you have to search and find wealthy Christians. I mean, there are a few examples, but they are few and far between, and the same was true of the early church. The early church was comprised primarily of those who lived in poverty, those who were poor. And this socioeconomic divide reflected an abusive two-part caste system that existed at the time of the early church between the rich and the poor, where the rich almost without fail oppressed the poor. And we see this like, rational, practical reasoning that James gives in, in verse six. He's like, you're, you're dishonoring the poor man and you're giving privilege and favoritism to the rich man. He's like, think about how little that makes sense. He's like, by and large, the rich are those, the rich non-Christians, they, they are those who are dragging you into court over property disputes and just taking your property. Okay, they, they are the ones who have influence over judges and can get away with anything. They're the ones who are abusing you. It really sets the context well for us. The rich had all the power, all the power. If you had money, you had power. And most of the time, they use their power to take advantage of the poor. That's why the center of James's letter a lot of people see is in verse 27 religion of chapter one, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's, it's turning the world upside down because the one who has the most power, God himself, cares most about those who have none, those who are rejected by the world. That's where the heart of God is. But if, if you lived in James's day and you were born into poverty, guess what? You died in poverty. There was no option. Your, your life depended on which family you were born into. And if you were born into a wealthy family, you would be well off. And if you were born into a poor family, you would not. You would live, by and large, a painful, hopeless life, according to the standards of this world. Now, that's the context, but a question for you. And I'm going to give you just a second. It may may take you like half a second to come up with an answer. Um, But if if you're a note taker, you might want to write it down. What examples come to mind when you hear the words favoritism and discrimination in the church? So really specific. Favoritism in the church. Discrimination in the church. What comes to mind? Write it down. Think about it favoritism in the church, discrimination in the church. Because I don't want us to lose sight of James's context, but you know, we're living in America in 2019 in Tupelo, Mississippi, and so it matters for us to consider the principle that James has laid out for us. So first, let's consider favoritism. I don't know about you, but I have been in churches where the people with the money control the church, not the pastors, not the deacons, the members who give the most. They're the ones that have the most influence. I actually knew of a pastor who could not make any decisions unless he asked two individuals in the church for their approval. This was not in any kind of church constitution or bylaw. It was a practical reality. As long as we keep the rich people in our church happy, we'll be okay. And you got to understand, like, from the perspective of a pastor, I know some of you are like, oh, how that is so low for a pastor to give in to, to, to such an attitude. Some people want to keep their jobs. And so they feel the pressure of, of keeping their jobs. So we got to keep the people who have the money, who have the power, uh, uh, yeah, happy. We got, we got to keep them happy. So they show them favoritism. Okay? Pastors overlooking sin in certain influential, powerful, rich people or granting disproportionate influence to the rich. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in the church. It's what comes to my mind. Um, so that's favoritism. Discrimination. Discrimination. I think of two examples. One, church cultures that are unwelcoming to the poor. And they may not, like if you ask them, are poor people welcome here? They may say yes. But if there is a de facto dress code in your church, certain kinds of people are not welcome. And then how are certain kinds of people treated? Because the example, and we're going to get into it in just a second, but the example that James gives here, especially when you look at the, the, the Greek, it is very clear what he's saying. You have two men entering a church gathering. One of them is as rich as you can get. The other is as poor as you can get. So we're talking super abundant wealth and super abundant poverty on on one side. So I don't know if you've ever been in a church or if you've ever been guilty of thinking this yourself, we don't want those kinds of people in here. What would people think if they saw homeless people in our church? Discrimination. Another especially historic problem of discrimination is discrimination based on skin color and ethnicity i don't know if that came to your mind but it's a reality that we have to deal with it's it's a reality that even if you personally have have felt like well i've not really been a part of that i was blessed my my parent, i don't feel like i grew up in a prejudiced home so you know i don't feel like i grew up in a prejudiced church so maybe you're blessed in that way but a lot of us were not okay and we we need to deal with it. We're 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 in the deep south. Um, this is a problem, and it's been an ugly stain on the Southern Baptist Convention since its founding. Okay, um, the SBC. I don't know if you knew this. Um, it was actually founded in, in Southern Seminary, where where I'm a student. It was actually founded by men who were phenomenal theologians. Phenomenal. I mean, seriously, like their work, even to this day, it is it is gold. I mean, they are phenomenal. Uh, but they were slave owners, and they advocated for and supported slavery, discrimination. I, I cannot believe that they actually read and commented on James two. You look, I mean, you read verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then you jump down to verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. You don't need to know Greek syntax to understand that. It is, it is clear as day. And yet... Southern Baptist churches, and we are, if you didn't know, if you didn't know, we we are a Southern Baptist church. We are affiliated with the SBC. But Southern Baptist churches in the South over the years have been known for many things, one of them being discrimination against non-believers and believers alike on the basis of the color of their skin. Now, here's some good news. And I, I find this I find this so interesting and phenomenal. Uh, this past week, um, if you're not, if you're not like, all really familiar with how the SBC works, um, Southern Baptist Convention is a cooperation of churches okay so we don't really have a hierarchy of church government each church is autonomous we, we do our own thing that's why so many Southern Baptist churches look so differently but we cooperate together we partner together for the sake of sending missionaries out into the world and for making theological education more affordable it's, it's, it's really a great thing and so every single year they have an annual meeting and every church has the opportunity based on how many members are in the church to send messengers and they are, they are members pastors anyone to the annual meeting and they part of what they do is they hear resolutions and they vote on them. They make resolutions, they hear resolutions and, and we vote on them. And this past week, messengers at this year's annual meeting voted overwhelmingly to amend the SBC's constitution to state that ethnic discrimination is grounds for a church to be deemed not in friendly cooperation with the denomination. So up until this time, you could be a racist church and remain in good standing with other Southern Baptist churches. You could violate James 2 publicly and openly and remain in, in good standing with the SBC and that is no longer the case. And so, I, I'm, exci- I'm, so I'm so excited to see that. And so basically if, if a congregation is found to discriminate based on ethnicity, they will be expelled from cooperation with with other southern baptist churches which is a very good thing so as we consider this text the questions for us are simple all right there's like i said there's so much clarity here james says show no partiality if you show partiality you are committing sin so i want to ask you just a few questions first why is favoritism in the church wrong not is it wrong james said it's wrong why is it wrong okay um second why is discrimination wrong we, we, don't, we don't have a choice to, to debate whether or not it is. It is show no partiality, favoritism, or discrimination. It is wrong. But why is it wrong? Why is it sinful to show favor or contempt to someone on the basis of their appearance or their status? And so I believe that this passage gives us three reasons why favoritism and discrimination in the church are sinful. And we're going to walk through those uh, point by point. So first... I believe favoritism and discrimination deny faith in Jesus. Favoritism and discrimination deny faith in Jesus. Second, favoritism and discrimination contradict the way God sees us. Okay, they contradict the way God sees us. And thirdly and finally, favoritism and discrimination violate the way of the kingdom the way of the kingdom. Okay, so uh, let's jump into James 2 and we'll walk through these uh, point by point. First, just a little bit of an exegetical outline. As we look at this passage, how does it divide? Because I don't know if you knew this, but there have not always been chapter divisions and verse divisions in scripture. Like when this was written, it was just written like a letter, okay? Just, Just a letter, like from front to back. And it was usually meant to be read in public from beginning to end. There were no really stoppages or divisions. However, it is helpful to see whenever he's making an argument, To show, well, this is where it stops and this is where something else begins. And in chapter two, it's really easy to divide, um, easier than a lot of places. Verses 1 through 13 are talking about one particular thing. And then verses 14 through 26, the idea shifts. But even in the first 13 verses, we can see how it divides. It divides in three different categories. First, there is an exhortation. There is a uh, command in verse 1. Show no partiality. Okay, that's where it begins. It's this exhortation in verse 1. Then in verses 2 through 4, we have an example. So if verse 1 is an exhortation, verse 2, uh, verses 2 through 4, we have this example that... Uh, Uh, James gives us. And then in verses five through 13, we have an explanation. So he gives us an exhortation. Then he gives us an example. Then in verses five through 13, he gives us an explanation. And through that explanation in verse five, he gives us a theological reason. In verses six through seven, he gives these rational reasons. And then finally in verses eight through 13, and I love when this happens, James actually goes back into scripture Itself and gives us a biblical reason. Like I said, uh, James, uh, James, the book of James really mirrors two different texts. It mirrors the first nine chapters of Proverbs, and then especially the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You find them all throughout James, and we're going to see it today. So, first, the first truth we want to we want to emphasize this morning: favoritism and discrimination deny faith in Jesus. So let's look at verse one. My brothers. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's actually a really difficult verse to uh, translate. There there are so many different options. If you have a version other than the ESV, it may may say it a little bit differently, Um, but the idea is clear. Show no partiality, favoritism or uh, discrimination as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I see that as James saying that to take up favoritism or discrimination is to put down faith in Jesus. You cannot hold both of them together. Now, what is faith according to James so far? What we've seen over the past couple weeks is that faith first is a gift of God's grace. It's something that he gives to us. And then second, faith itself is not a work of earning salvation, but it is the reception of God's grace in Christ. It's receiving a gift. So faith is a gift. Faith is the reception of a gift. And then finally, faith obeys. All right, James does not have a category of saving faith in Jesus that does not lead to obedience and faithfulness to his word. Faith obeys. It seeks to extend the grace that we have received, to extend God's grace into the world, while at the same time, you look at the end of verse 27 of chapter 1, remaining unstained from the world. So saving faith in Jesus receives God's grace, Extends God's grace and remains unstained from the world. So, whenever we see in verse one, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that's what James is talking about when he says faith. So, what do we see here? Faith in Jesus is incompatible with favoritism and discrimination. And I see that happening in three different categories. So, first, favoritism and discrimination require us to set ourselves up as judges with the world's social standards as our basis for judgment. Okay, when you show favoritism to someone else based on their appearance or their status or you sh- or you discriminate against someone based on their appearance or their status, you are setting yourself up as a judge. And you're using as your guide, as your standard, the world's current social standards. So at James's time, what were the world's current social standards? that, the rich, had power, uh, that the, the rich were powerful. Those who had money had power. Those who were poor were destitute and rejected. And so you have a rich man and a poor man coming into an assembly and what do they do? They follow the world's standards and they show partiality. They, they show favor toward the rich because that's what the world did at the time. And they show contempt toward the poor because that's what the world did at the time. They became judges. What does James say um, in in verse four? He's like, after he gives the uh, illustration, he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So favoritism and discrimination require us to set ourselves up as judges with the world's social standards as our basis for judgment. And that totally contrasts with faith. What does faith in Jesus do? Faith in Jesus, on the other hand, is a submission to Jesus as the only rightful king and judge of human hearts. When you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you're turning from the right, you're renouncing, judging. Setting yourself up as a king of your own life or a judge of others and you're submitting fully to Jesus as king and judge. When we trust in Jesus alone for salvation, we declare that we submit to his standard and his ways above above everything else. Um, One of my favorite commentators on the book of James is J.A. Motyer. He died last year, but he's just a phenomenal scholar. Uh, Motyer says, in both status and judgment the Lord Jesus Christ must reign supreme. As to how we accept others, we must ask how he would accept them. As to how we appraise others, we must ask how he appraises them. As to how we act toward others, we must ask how he acts towards them. Our values, priorities, and activities must ever be governed by the definition of true glory displayed in the person, conduct and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so faith is incompatible with favoritism and discrimination because faith in Jesus refuses to become a judge of other people. Instead, we are submitting to Christ who is the judge. Okay, the next the next aspect of this. Favoritism and discrimination flow out of a warped hierarchy that only exists because of sin. Where people are evaluated and appraised based on what they can contribute to the world okay or if if the worldly standards at the time is if you are a certain if you have a certain color of skin you are valuable and if you have a different color of skin you are not valuable those those hierarchies they are only in existence because of sin they are not god's eternal standards for human value So favoritism and discrimination flow out of that warped hierarchy, but faith in Jesus recognizes the only true hierarchy, that you have God and you have everyone else. You have God who is holy and supreme and righteous and glorious, and then you have man who has rebelled against their creator, who is sinful and wretched, See, faith in Jesus recognizes this is the only true hierarchy. There's God and then there's us. And the world would have us create new hierarchies based on socioeconomic status, based on uh, who's in your family, who your daddy is, based on the color of your skin. Okay, those are, those are worldly standards that only come from sin. Faith in Jesus sees Jesus as our only hope of reconciling the only divide that truly exists, which is the divide between God and man. Uh, one commentator says, true faith has no place for the social distinctions of the world. There's no place for it. Okay, and then there's a third category of this. So favoritism and discrimination divide and make godless distinctions based on worldly status. So when you show favoritism for someone because of their outward appearance or because of their status or you discriminate against someone because of their outward appearance or their social status, you create a division. James tells us in verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? Which, you know, there's debate in, in this situation, first of all, is James actually referring to something that really happened? Is this just a scenario, a hypothetical? I kind of lean toward that. But, you know, in the hypothetical, are the people coming in believers or are they non believers? And, you know, there's so much debate. It's like, well, you know, they're probably non believers because they have to be shown where to sit, um, but they, they could be believers as well. But think about how treacherous it would be to look at two brothers in Christ and show one honor and respect and the other contempt, not because of who they are in Jesus, but because of who they are in the world. Faith in Jesus has no place for those kinds of distinctions. It has no place for that division. Faith in Jesus doesn't divide us. Faith in Jesus unites us It unites us with God and it unites us with one another. It takes people who are in reality because social distinctions in the world are real, right? I mean, they're real. It's just how the world is. But it takes people who are all over the map and brings them together in unity so that when we come from the world and we come in this place, we come together. No matter what our social status is in this city, we come together as one. So, if you discriminate against another believer or a non believer, you discriminate against someone else because of the way that they look or because of their status, or if you show favor to someone because of their status or because of the way that they look, you are denying your faith in Jesus. So, I I think we all would do well to examine our hearts. And that's what James really is asking us to do throughout this book. Examine your heart to see, has any of this crept in? Do you, how how do you feel, for example, when you see certain kinds of people walk in this room if you don't know them and you've never seen them before? How does it make you feel? Take inventory of your heart and just know that faith in Jesus has no place for these social distinctions. It has no place for favoritism, it has no place for discrimination. Favoritism and discrimination cannot flow out of faith in Jesus. They only flow out of sin. Okay. Um, Yeah, one more word on this. Um, By Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, do you understand what we see? We see one who is immeasurably rich become poor become poor and then live a fully and perfect righteous life and then die and then come back from the dead in victory over sin and death that victory crushed all of these sinful barriers that the world would have us make his death and his resurrection crushed these social distinctions in the church. We know they're gonna be there in the world, but in the church, they are no more. They are no more. He has created unity. So looking to Jesus in faith is joining him in that victory and walking in the way of his kingdom that we're gonna look at when we get down to verse eight. Okay, so first, favoritism and discrimination, deny faith in Jesus. Second, favoritism and discrimination, contradict the way God sees us. So let's read the illustration. We've already talked about it a little bit, um, but let's go all the way down to verse 7 from verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then here's where his uh, reasoning begins. Listen, my beloved brothers, he's imploring them. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? There's the theological reason, verse six. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called in those two verses? That's the rational reason, and we're gonna stop right there and pick up the biblical reason here in a second. Okay, so favoritism and discrimination. Why are they wrong? Why are they sinful? Our second reason is because they contradict the way God sees us. So in the illustration, like I said, we have a man who couldn't be richer and a man who couldn't be poorer. Faith in Jesus gives us eyes to see people the way God sees us okay faith in Jesus gives us new eyes to where we see people the way God sees them whereas the temptation is to see people the way the world conditions us to see them we are called to see people the way God sees them and we do that by faith in Jesus. Favoritism and discrimination then are based on worldly standards of value. So in James' example, just look at it for a second there, verses two and three. Why is the rich person treated with honor while the poor person is humiliated? Why? What, I mean, there would be a reason. Why, why, would, why would they do that? only because of the world's standard of value. The world says a rich person is more valuable and influential and important than a poor person. And that's how the world worked then, and by and large, that's how the world works now. Your life is easier if you have more money. And typically, you have more influence and you have more power in the world. But those are worldly standards. God's standard on the other hand is the only standard by which we should treat one another. So we don't have to deny that the social distinctions exist. We we don't have to deny that they're there. We don't have to deny that the world does value people based on what they contribute. We don't have to deny that, but we reject it for how we conduct ourselves in the church. We fully reject it. And we don't use it as our guide for how we treat one another. No, we treat one another on the basis of God's standards. Seek the kingdom of God. It turns the standards of the world upside down. A person's actual value and importance is not rooted in what the world says of them, but in what God says of them. So what we know is, although the world despises the poor, God chooses the poor. Do you see what he's saying here in verse 5? He's saying, it is so wrong for you to make these distinctions and to discriminate against the poor, because while you are rejecting the poor, God has chosen the poor. These poor Christians, these Christians in poverty that you are rejecting on the basis of their poverty, God has chosen on the basis of his rich and free grace. One commentator says, God delights especially to shower his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are most keenly aware of their own inadequacy. James calls on the church to embody a similar ethic of special concern for the poor and the helpless. So the poor are not elected by God because they are poor. The poor are elected by God because God is rich in grace and mercy, but what James is saying is, it makes no sense for us to reject those God has accepted by his grace just because the world rejects them. We, we cannot see people the way the world sees them. We have to see people the way God sees people. So both favoritism and discrimination misattribute the value of a person. You know, favoritism says this person's valuable, but the reason it gives is because the world says they're valuable. Discrimination says this person's not valuable, and the reason is because the world says that they are not valuable. And it's all based on appearance. Favoritism is wrong because it attributes a rich man's value to his worldly status and wealth. But a rich Christian, and by the way, by the way, um, I thought about addressing this now. I think I'm going to address it tomorrow in an email because it's, it's actually a really important question. A question you could ask from this passage is, is it sinful to be rich? Is it wrong? Is it wrong to be inherently wealthy? Um, don't have time to really get into that. Uh, today, but we do see early in James 1, just in case you're worried about that, that there clearly are rich people who are in the church, okay? We, We see that early on in chapter 1, but a rich person, a rich Christian's worth is not rooted in his wealth. A rich Christian's worth is rooted in God's acceptance of them and calling of them and and choice of them. Discrimination then is wrong because it rejects and casts out someone that God has chosen and accepted. And he has very simple theological reasoning. Don't discriminate against the poor because God has chosen them and laid up for them invaluable, eternal riches. They are chosen by God, not because their bank accounts are empty, but because God's grace is full and overflowing so if you're here and you're like, man, we're barely making it paycheck to paycheck and you wish you could do more for the, for the sake of the kingdom, you feel like you're not doing enough, you feel like you're so limited because of how little that you have, know that your worth is not found in what you have, it is found in who you are in Jesus. Regardless of our earthly status, our position and status in Christ, is one of immeasurable wealth and blessing that will one day be culminated at the return of Christ and then forevermore. What does Paul tell us in Second Corinthians chapter eight? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So if you show favoritism, if you discriminate, you are not seeing with the eyes of faith. You're not seeing people as God sees people. You are seeing people as the world sees people, and we must reject that. Okay, third and final reason. Why why is favoritism wrong? Why is discrimination wrong? Because it violates the way of the kingdom. So favoritism and discrimination violate the way of the kingdom. And this is where he gives us biblical reasoning. Look at verse 8. It says here, if you really, but you know, there's another valid interpretation and there really is a change here where you could say, however. So we'll just, we'll just go with the ESV. It probably knows more than me. Um, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy then triumphs over judgment. All right, so we see three different things here. First, um, I want you to see this distinction. Royal law. Royal law equals law of the king. Right? The law of the king, which is the law of Jesus, which James gets really specific, and he's, he's not just talking about you know, the, the Torah or the Ten Commandments or, or, or even you know, the whole body of Jesus' work or maybe all of that, and there are debates on what James is actually referring to here, but he does give us a very clear example that at the heart of all of that is one central command that he has in mind. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, You are doing well. So that one central command, love your neighbor as yourself, is on his mind here. Okay, so what we can see and what we can say since this royal law is the law of the king, the law of Jesus, when Jesus came to earth, he brought something with him. He brought a kingdom. All right? And this kingdom was inaugurated and it will one day be consummated by Jesus. Now, the kingdom of God is less a physical place and more a spiritual realm. And everyone who trusts in Jesus, if you are in Christ today, you are in the kingdom of God, all right? That's how we enter into the kingdom of God, It's by faith. And so while we live in this world, we are not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is in this heavenly kingdom, And so we are called to live in light of that kingdom. We are called to live according to the way of the kingdom. Now, what does life in the kingdom look like? Generally, life in the kingdom looks like obedience to Jesus, to his word and to his teachings. And at the center of all of Jesus' commands and expectations of us as his followers is this command to love. Turn with me really quick to Matthew 25 just so I can show you. I'm sorry, did I say 25, 22. Oh, there they go. All right, Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So back to James 2. When James references this command to love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying the way you fulfill this royal law is to love God and to love neighbor. The heart of Christian discipleship is the cultivation of our love for God and others. All right, so that's the basis. And now he's, now he's saying two things about that. First, when he goes back to partiality and favoritism and discrimination. Favoritism and discrimination violate the law of love. Okay, they violate the way of the kingdom. So simply put, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you discriminate against him. You can't do it. It's impossible. So not only is discrimination and favoritism incompatible with saving faith, they are also incompatible with love of God and of neighbor. Love for neighbor is the antithesis. It is the opposite of discrimination based on appearance or status. You are not loving your neighbor if you show him favoritism because of his appearance or status. And you are definitely not loving your neighbor if you are rejecting him on the basis of the way he looks. So why should we reject both of those? Why is it wrong? Why is it good that we pass this amendment as uh, as a convention? Because we believe in the centrality of the supremacy of Christ over us as the king in this kingdom. We believe that we are to love God and love others and everything else flows out from that. So we reject these. Now, he, you know, he mentions two other commands here from, from the Ten Commandments. He, he mentioned and, and commands that Jesus uh, teaches on in the Sermon on the Mount. Adultery and murder. Why do you think he references those two? Because if, if he was only trying to make the point that uh, if you if you transgress one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing, he could have used any law, it didn't really matter. Why did he use these two? Because he also has love in mind. Mentioning adultery and murder highlights the offense of discrimination. It highlights the offense of discrimination by contrasting it with love for neighbor. So just as one cannot love neighbor and commit murder or adultery against him or her, one cannot love his neighbor and discriminate against him or her. So this law of love that is handed down to us by King Jesus that we are to follow, it requires that the poorest, most forgotten person in this city receives just as much honor, respect, and attention from us as the richest, most influential person in this city. The homeless in this city should receive as much honor and respect and love and care from us as the mayor of the city, okay? And if a homeless person and the mayor of the city walked in here, shame on us, shame on us if we show favoritism to one and we show contempt for the other because that's not what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to unity um, and love. So then, Not only does favoritism and discrimination violate this law of love, but favoritism and discrimination, just so we're abundantly clear, okay, it makes us guilty before God. It makes us guilty before God. So no matter how holy or obedient you are, if you violate even one aspect of the law, you are unavoidably guilty before God you can't make up for it that's James's point here he says in verse 9 if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors and if for some reason you think this is just a minor sin and it really it really just doesn't matter he's like whoever keeps the whole law but fails in even one point has become accountable for all of it so if you're doing everything else right and you discriminate you're guilty of the whole law. Even, the one, even those little laws that you're obeying, you're guilty of the whole thing because you are still transgressing, you are still sinning against the one law giver. You're sinning against God. So just as a reminder, maybe this is helpful for some of you, avoiding certain sins while committing others will not help your case before the king. It won't help your case before, before God. Discrimination against the poor is as much a violation of the law as murder or adultery. Now, I want to be careful. They're not the same thing. Okay, a lot of people will say that all sin is the same. It's not the same, okay? You, you know, someone, someone, you know, dr- drops a nuclear bomb and wipes out half of civilization. Not the same thing is stealing a pencil off somebody's desk, okay? I mean, it's like, all sin is not the same. However, all sin, no matter the sin, makes you guilty before God. So... What should we do? We know what not to do, right? James is abundantly clear. We know what not to do. What should we do? I love verse 12. I especially love verse 13. He says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Simple closing exhortation Be marked by mercy without judgment. Or, maybe this is a little bit of a warning, or you will face judgment without mercy. All right, so we need to be marked by mercy without these distinctions, without these judgments that come from evil thoughts, or we will face judgment without mercy. So when he says, so speak and so act, the tense in the Greek means that we should always be speaking. We should always be acting. It literally says speak and act in such a manner as those who are about to be judged by the law of liberty. So why should we be doers of the word? Why should we follow the way of the kingdom? Why should we live in submission to this law of love, this law of liberty? Because we will be judged according to it. You will not be judged on Judgment Day according to the world's standards. So don't follow them now. Don't treat one another on the basis of what the world's standards are. You are not accountable to them. If you are in Christ, you are accountable to King Jesus only and his law that he gives us. So live according to it. Live your life keenly aware that there is a judge, but you are not him. And one day... We don't need to, to like avoid this or try to clean it up. One day, he will judge you and he will judge me. Not according to flawed or warped human standards, but according to his perfect standard of righteousness. And on that day, not a single one of us, whether rich or poor, will be able to stand on our own. None of us will. Every one of us deserves and would face righteous righteousness judgment but do you know why he calls us to show mercy do you know why we're called to show mercy to others do you know how our mercy triumphs over judgment do you know know how that happens do you know why because God has been merciful to us in Jesus because he has shown us so much mercy because we fall into this category, not as one who can keep the whole law, but even if we could keep the whole law, we would fail it at one point and thereby be guilty of all of it before God. That's where we all fall, every single person in this room. But we are called to show mercy to others because God has shown mercy to us. When we show mercy to others, we are giving evidence that God has been merciful to us. Doug Moo, the commentator, he says, the believer in himself will always deserve God's judgment. Conformity to the royal law is never perfect as it must be. Do you ever consider that? How every single day, even as a Christian, you still need the gospel? You still need God's grace? Even as we are striving to be conformed to the image of his son, we're never gonna experience perfection in this life which is what he expects. And then he goes on to say, but our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. You wanna show that Jesus is in you, that you abide in him and he abides in you in this city? Show mercy. Show mercy to one another, show mercy to others. Then he goes on to say, and it is on the basis of this union with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we can have confidence of vindication at the judgment. So our confidence on judgment day is not that we will just be super merciful and then God will pardon us on the basis of our mercy. No, it will be that we have shown mercy be, or we, we will show mercy because God has shown us mercy. And that will be our vindication on that great day. So final, final thought. Rid your mind of the thought that a Christian would be a good member of this church because of what they have to offer. I don't know if you've ever thought that before. Someone visits you're like, man, I think they'd be a great member. I think, I think they'd be a great member. And what you have in mind is what they can contribute. If, if a Christian wants to join this church, they are an invaluable asset. They are. Do you know Why? because God has chosen and called them for himself in Jesus. Our worth is found in Jesus alone. So let's live like it. And may our mercy always triumph and conquer judgment because God's mercy triumphed over judgment in the death and resurrection of his son. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that you would Forgive us for any time that we have shown favor or contempt toward a person, even if it remained in our mind, on the basis of their appearance. Forgive us for the ways that we have discriminated. May you break us If we have ever been guilty of making someone feel unwelcome because of their status in this world or because of the way that they look, forgive us and heal us. Heal us as a church, heal us as individual Christians, and I pray that you would heal our denomination after years of Favoritism and discrimination after years of disobedience to this very passage that we have read and proclaimed. Father, may we be known for the next hundred years as a church that shows no favoritism and no discrimination, no contempt, but instead, mercy Your mercy has triumphed over the judgment that we deserve because you sent your son to face judgment. He received judgment so that we could receive mercy. So Father, empower us and equip us to show mercy to those in this city who have otherwise been rejected by the world. You If we are in Christ, it's because you have chosen us. So help us to see one another as you see us. Help us to see people in this city as you see them. And Father, protect us. Protect us from the denial of our faith in Jesus. We do not want to deny our faith in Jesus by the way that we live. But we know that's what Satan wants. So I pray that you would protect us and empower us to live a life that flows out of our faith in Jesus, which is obedience to the way of the kingdom, this law of love. Oh, Jesus, show yourself strong and evident and apparent in our lives and through us as we extend the mercy that we have received to others. Fathers, we leave this place. I pray that we would leave changed because of your word and because of your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.